Working Class Audio is brought to you by Universal Audio, Audio Technica, Lauten Audio, Focal Monitors, and Gearsluts.com. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 170. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 170 you're listening to. My guest today is Kevin Army, Bay Area producer, engineer, mixer. Kevin's been at it for quite some time. He's worked with bands such as the Mr. T Experience, Operation Ivy, Green Day, and of course, the offshoot of that, Pinhead Gunpowder. Jay Church, Social Unrest, The Bombassets, Engine 88, American Steel, Dr. Frank, just a ton of releases, very long history in the Bay Area recording. Now, what's interesting about Kevin, and we're going to talk about this with him, is in a recent blog post at kevinarmy.com, and I'll include a link to that in the show notes, Kevin basically explains how he actually retired from music and recording about 14 years ago. He quit producing and engineering music altogether to pursue other things. And there's a number of reasons why, which we'll go into in our interview. But recently on uh, March 13th, he had a blog post where he was announcing his retirement from retirement and therefore re-entering the world of recording. And uh, I look forward to having him here at my house today to talk about it. He is uh, going to come over and we're going to sit down over a cup of coffee, of course, and uh, we're going to chat about it. We're going to hear all about uh, his past, uh, his retirement and his retirement from retirement and uh, talk about what the future holds for Kevin. So I'm really looking forward to having Kevin on. He is a, uh, he's kind of a Bay Area legend uh, to many of us. So yeah, Kevin Army coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. All right, I want to talk to you about distractions. And this is kind of a, a part two discussion. I think I discussed uh, Facebook in a uh, previous uh, podcast. So I'm going to talk a little more about that now. And some of it may be repetitive of what I've already said. So bear with me. Um, Facebook, as I have said in the past, is the biggest time suck in the world to me. I will make no bones about it. I actually enjoy Facebook quite a bit. It's uh, it's highly entertaining to me, but I also used to enjoy smoking quite a bit. I was a heavy smoker for for many years and uh, glad I don't smoke anymore. Uh, don't want that around my kids. You know, just don't want that in my life. It's just, it's a killer. So um, I got rid of it. And just like smoking, when you, when you get rid of smoking, you know, you're replacing that with something else. Maybe some people drink more, some people drink more coffee. That's my vice, of course. Uh, some people eat more. So in the case of Facebook, once I got rid of it, the next thing I found myself going and dwelling on was uh I love them, but the, it's also another time suck. Reverb.com, a uh, great site for selling and buying gear. Uh, but I had the app on my phone. And once Facebook was gone, I found myself being pacified by looking through used gear listings going, oh, this is, ooh, maybe I'll buy that. So uh, that was next to go. I got rid of that off my phone. And now if I need something... I'll go there and I'll go look and I'll look at, you know, I'll look at the gear sluts classifieds. I'll go look at reverb.com. I'll go look at eBay. I'll go look at all those things when the need arises. I won't sit there and just passively scan through stuff, justifying purchases. So getting rid of Facebook uh, on the phone, getting rid of reverb.com on the phone. eBay is probably going to be next. And uh, that's, that's kind of a, a similar situation. 
Now, I am still on Facebook uh, because I have to maintain the Working Class Audio Facebook site and also my production audio uh, site as well, or, you know, those Facebook pages. Uh, Now, when it comes to my own personal thing, I've started limiting my posts to music-based posts, things that are useful. Try not to be, you know, uh, engaging in heavy-duty political arguments with old high school friends. That was probably one of my number one vices. So that said, it's interesting when you remove these uh, these distractions and you kind of start to tailor, uh, just on the phone alone, just tailor the apps that you use on your phone to the things that help you get more work, and, and that's good. And then when you don't have those distractions and you're not working, then you could spend time with those that you truly enjoy being around and be more mindful of that, of course, you know, being with kids, your boyfriends, your girlfriends, your aunts and uncles and moms and dads, your family, your friends, those that care about you. That's really uh, enjoyable. And there's just not that constant desire to uh, passively listening to people as you're uh, looking at your phone. I, it's it's actually kind of rude, actually, I think. So uh, that's that's kind of my rant on that. Curious what you all think. Um, if you have a particular strong opinion, you know, feel free to uh, send me an email, matt at workingclassaudio.com, of course. And uh, let me know what your approach is. Always curious to hear. Also, I want to mention if you're looking for more, you know, kind of bigger picture audio things to enhance your life, like we talk about here on Working Class Audio, be sure and head on over to gearslets.com to the audio life subform. That's the the one that I always talk about that we sponsor. And uh if you don't want to get into a discussion about gear um, and you want to talk about life type things, sur- survival things, and uh, all the things that encompass uh, our audio world, except for the gear, head on over to audiolife at uh, gearslets.com and check that out. Also, while you're at it, be sure and head on over to uaudio.com. That's Universal Audio's website, of course. And uh, make sure and check out all of the uh, promos that they have going on there. There's always some promo going on, whether it's, you know, buying an Apollo and getting a free satellite or buying a satellite and getting a bunch of free plugins. There's something going on over there all the time. So head on over to uaudio.com and be sure and visit our friends there. Of course, uh, Gearslets, Universal Audio, all the sponsors that uh, help make the podcast possible and uh, help cover a lot of the bills here, which is really helpful. So uh, that's it. Let's get on over to our conversation here that uh, we're going to start with Mr. Kevin Army here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Welcome to the podcast. Welcome to my house, studio. Nice to have you here. Thanks for having me here. You're one of the names that is, I mean, I've been in the Bay Area since uh, September of 88, and your name has always kind of been there in the background as a recording guy. You're one of the ones that's always stuck out and Josh Roberts, who's been on the show. Josh used to always, you know, rave about you. And he sent me in to help you set up once. We did meet years ago. Oh, we did. Yeah. That's right. Back at Roof Brothers. Wow. That was a long time ago. Long time ago. It was probably one of the first two records or first three records I worked on. Probably like 94. You're a name that's synonymous in my mind with really tight, punchy punk rock and rock and roll records. That I can remember, you know, I mentioned in my monologue, you've worked with uh, Green Day and of course the offshoot of that, the uh, pinhead gunpowder thing, the Mr. T experience, American Steel. You had this career for quite some time and and we'll get to that, but I really want to jump in immediately to this, uh, what got you on my radar 
recently was your talking about your retirement from retirement because 14 years ago you stepped away from all of this and now you're getting back into it. So let's let's go back to what caused you to, you know, for lack of a better term, retire or step aside or take a leave of absence from the world of recording. What what caused all of that? Step aside is the more accurate term. <laughs> uh, God, there's so many factors. There's the artistic factor where I was feeling like I was repeating myself because once you do something that people hear and is successful, they want that. And that can be good, but it can also be a trap a little bit. So when yet again, someone goes, can you make my guitar sound like Billy Joe? (laughs) And I can kind of do it, but also he has a way of hitting the guitar. So it's never going to quite be that. And then the expectation of, well, if my guitar sounds like, kind of like Billy Joe, then I'm going to be successful like Billy Joe. Sure. And, and that isn't true. Um, Cause there's only one Billy Joe. Yeah. So, I mean, there's just this, I was working in a scene of music that went from the most exciting thing ever when the Gilman bands first started. It goes from this uninhibited scene where these people are doing this music, this Gilman punk rock stuff, just because they want to do it. There was no hope. And for the audience, uh, Gilman Street is a club, is is a very, very uh, legendary punk rock type club in the Bay Area that's been around for, I don't, I don't even know how long. 86, I think. I've never set foot inside the building. Uh, I attempted to, uh, to go see Fugazi there one time and joked about how it was going to sell out right when we got to the door. And that's, in fact, what happened. So, carry on. Back when it started, you couldn't make money with punk rock. It was kind of hopeless. So you just had people doing this stuff for love and just to do it. And by the time I got out, it's people like looking at it as a career choice. There's a whole arc that changed and probably my arc changed too with it. So I can't fault anyone for that. There's a combination of things getting a little stagnant on my end as much as anyone else's. And just the fact that it's now... We're all trying to see how successful we can be. I include myself with that. I'm not good at the whole explanation because I don't (laughs) totally understand myself. Uh But there were other factors way past that. That's just a piece of it. I mean, there's just personal stuff. I think I'd been out for a while, but I came out like 20 years ago and burying myself in a recording studio wasn't really giving me space to deal with that. I mean, I was dealing with it, but I think I just needed to stop not just coming out and finding myself as a gay guy, but also just finding myself as a human again, because mm-hmm. you're just, you're locked in these rooms for 14 hour days, or at least the way I would work. You mentioned coming out. Was that, I mean, in the music world of what you were primarily recording, we'll just say punk rock, rock and roll. Mm-hmm. Was that somehow at, at odds with those you were working with? Was that? Ever an issue? I don't think so. I mean, there's a correlation with coming out and having less work. And I don't know if that's because I was more preoccupied with other things hmm. or if my career had run its course. I don't think people had a problem with it. Some people might have. Obviously, the punks are, you know, fairly open. I don't know. I don't know if it has a factor. I don't think so. And God knows all those people have been so supportive of me being an out person throughout the years that I can't. I, I don't think that's a factor. And and I certainly don't want to, you know, belittle that or or play play it down the significance of it in your life. But I guess 
and maybe it's because I've just lived in the Bay Area, you know, for so long that I'm like, oh, you came out. Okay, great. You came out. Uh, I guess it seems in the in the context of the Bay Area, it's like, okay, did, how'd you sleep last night? Yeah. <laughs> you know? Well, 20 years ago, it wasn't quite like that. Right. You know, still. And I, I realized there's a history of gay guys in the authority or the business end of punk rock latching on to punk rock to, you know, for not the best reasons. I mean, going all the way back to 1977 and that was never me, but I don't know how that affects perception. I don't know. I have no idea. It's not a thing I worry about because I don't, I can't see it being a problem now. I mean, whatever I was trying to figure out, which is more than that in 14 years, it's all figured out. You know, I'm happily married. I'm, I'm pretty settled with who I am. I'm very comfortable. Everyone else seems very comfortable. But, and that wasn't the only factor. I mean, you, you talk about things getting repetitive and yeah. formulaic. Were, were you just becoming bored in the studio? Well, starting to do records in a way I don't, I'm not best at and I don't love doing, I think. When I look back, what I'm really good at is setting a band up, putting them in a room, not having headphones not worrying about the click track, having them play live and just get some powerful energetic performance out of that. My gift is not let's do the drums, then let's do the bass, then let's do the guitar and let's have everyone isolated and let's take two months to do that record. Mm-hmm. I can do it. And it, I think that's great if you're, if you're green day and you have however much money you want to spend and you're as amazing musicians as them. Not to say other people aren't, but I think it's hard to get the kind of thing I'm good at doing that. Mm. And of course, there there's definitely no coincidence of me dropping out as computers take over, right? right. I mean, the last yeah. record I had done, we had just done all the computer stuff. I hired Mark Keaton at uh, Sharkbite to engineer because he knew how to fix the drums and do all the vocal fixes and stuff. And we did that. That record's fine, probably, but it's not what I like to do. Um, and it's not what I'm best at. Not to discourage people from the idea of me doing something different, because God knows my own music is everything I say I shouldn't do. But I'm the things I've done that are best are not done that way. So I mean, you you do come from. I mean, when you started, it was it was analog. It was and that analog workflow, along with this method of setting the band up and not worrying about click tracks and headphones and isolation tends to lend itself to that analog workflow and expectations mm-hmm. from that analog workflow. Whereas the computer-based recording we all depend upon now, even the bands expect there to be some editing and request some editing, at least in my experience of, of the last you know several years of, of using computers. Yeah. Well, everyone's learned. I mean, that was my struggle with this, this recent project idea. I mean, they're all around my age group and they've been in studios and and they've learned all the techniques I don't like to do. Um, <laughs> and I mean, me and the drummer just kept going back and forth because he wanted headphones. And I'm like, I don't want you to have headphones. We had to eventually compromise. He wanted vocals. So I had him sing through those PA speakers at uh, Shark Bite, oh. the ones in the control room, <laughs> the singer. And it's hard to, it's really hard. This is going to be a challenge. And I'm open to doing things in different ways. And I also believe there's never any rule that's set in stone, right? Very often you set out to do things one way and another way is going to work. Mm-hmm. And I, I totally understand that. 
But it was getting this way when I left where people were very close-minded to the idea that they could all play together in a room like they do in practice or live because they had heard these bands all do it a piece at a time and that's what they're trying to duplicate that success. And this perfection, you know, well, we got to punch this part in, we got to punch that in, everything's got to be just in place. It's looking back on what I did, like, I mean, there's a large amount of the music in that film, Turned It Around, that's about Gilman Street that I worked on. And the the things that have endured are just like, I mean, there's some stuff that sounds terrible, that's sloppy as hell, and uh, people are still listening to it. And the record I'm most known for as a producer is Operation Ivy. I threw them in a room. They did the basic tracks in something like six or eight hours. And then it took a while to do the vocals and some guitar overdubs maybe. But I mean, the whole record cost $1,200 to do. And it's a legendary punk rock record that's sold over a million copies and is still in print and is on people's best list. Wow. But it's so hard for people to, like with them, I had, at the time, I remember saying, you know, we're just going to punch in if it's really important. We're not going to like do the whole bass track again. And we don't have the money to, that was good back then. You could just tell people, we don't have the money to fix things. <laughs> but then budgets became more than $1,200. So there was the money to fix things. There's no perfect answer mm-hmm. to all that stuff. And, you know, I'm sitting in a room on my computer working, doing electronic music and using the grid patterns and drum machines and all keyboard samplers and doing that to myself. So my rules are probably less defined that I make them sound. Well, so w- what's been going on for 14 years? What what have you preoccupied yourself with doing? What line of work have you have you pursued and what's taken that time up? I've been a record dealer, used records. Oh. And uh and that is a crashing market, the eBay part of it. And that's one of my things right now and also I'm getting a little bored of that. I get bored of things eventually, I think. So I've been doing that and several times gotten very sick. Which is one of the reasons the break lasted so long. I don't think I ever intended to stay away. I think I intended to get away for a while and like regroup and figure out what else I wanted to do. But And I'm still trying to figure out what new ways can I do things. You mentioned it in your blog, and, and, and if you don't want to go into detail, that's fine. But uh, you mentioned a series of surgeries that, mm-hmm. that uh, ate up some time and... and you know, obviously, anytime you have a surgery, even the most minor thing, hell, I had an endoscopy and I thought I would be fine at the end of the, by the end of the day, but mm-hmm. it ate up the whole day. I yeah. mean, I was, I was out, mm-hmm. could not function. And my wife was like, okay, I got it. Yeah. Lay down, shut up. So anything beyond that, you know, is, is costly, is time consuming. So do you care to elaborate on that or, or, or not? Um, just, it was rough. Uh, you know, I mean, two of the surgeries, uh, I just barely made it. The second, second surgery went wrong. So I kept going back in the hospital, getting reinfected and like spent a month in the County hospital. Oh my God. Um, not as bad as it sounds. Great doctors. Sometimes you have to share your room with some scary people. (laughs) Like here's the gunshot victim next to you today. At some point I was so sick. I don't know if I could even notice. I was just the third, I was kept getting readmitted the third time I was readmitted, I was just like laying there. I thought, I'm not going to make it through the day. A friend of mine came in and looked at me and she just almost passed out. I mean, she just turned totally white and just ran out of the room. And the the nice surgeon is just sitting next to me. He's going, I'm not going to let you die. We're going to find the right antibiotic and we're not going to let you die. And, uh, and, and as scary as Highland Hospital sounds, that's our county hospital. The staff is amazing there and got me through it. And so, I mean, it 
took a long time to recover from all this. Yeah. I think I was a little crazy for a while afterwards. And two or three years ago, I'm a little hazy on it. I had to have another surgery and that one went a little wrong too. So it's been rough on the health stuff. Yeah. The good part of that is, man, a lot of kindness was shown to me through that from unexpected people and a lot of understanding certain things about the grace you find in life, feeling like time is now just a gift. It's kind of like bonus time, Yeah. Um, which can lead to you sitting there going, me. It can lead me to sitting there going, well, was I put on the earth just to sell records? And in the meantime, in all that, I learned how to write, I think, a little bit. And in the crazy part of the year after the second surgery would be me blogging and reporting on the Occupy stuff. But I had no business being out for the hours I was out. Um, I became fascinated with it. It's one of the things that brought me back to life, kind of. It's Mm -hmm. like six months after the really bad time in the hospital. And there I'm out for 12 hours a day watching the camps get dismantled. Are we talking about Occupy Wall Street? Okay, In Oakland, the Oakland version. Um, And getting in front of the police, getting thrown down, and all kinds of stuff. And uh, not thinking about money. Yeah. I wasn't making money. And my whole focus for about a year was like, how do I live and how do I come back to life? Which I'm still paying for. Yeah. Uh, the problem for me, the financial fallout of all three surgeries is just not being able to pay my bills afterwards. So I owe everyone money. Medical costs were covered because fortunately first surgeries, number one and two were right after the recession and the business had crashed. So it's been an interesting journey. I would say. Yeah. I'm sure making records, no doubt brought you a lot of enjoyment, a lot of pleasure, and gave you a sense of who you are and, and a sense of well-being. Did you miss that in the in the 14 years? Did you start to look back and think, hmm, I kind of like doing that and I'm good at it? Not till the last four years, maybe, I think. I think uh, there's a whole series of events that led up to me wanting to do it again. Ryan from American Steel on Shark Bite, get me to help him on his record. I remember that. Which was, I guess, three years ago. Which was more me being the overseen producer sitting there and going, yeah, do it again. That vocal is great, but not getting onto the controls and also then kind of wishing I knew how to work the controls that started that planted a seed in there. Um, and when we say controls, we're mainly referring to the computer um, or even just getting at the board. I kind of left, I kind of left most of it alone, except when we did the vocals, I went and, you know, got the vocal sound, but otherwise he kind of did everything, which is good. I, I, the Pro Tools aspect, I can understand, but you've spent a long time at a board. Yeah, but Ryan, you know, it's his project, and I think he he wanted me there to help him. He didn't want me to take over and do the whole thing. We've done that, mm. right, with American Steel Records. I mean, it started out him saying, hey, you know, I could use some help at least with my vocals, you know, and I was like, or, you know, you can do this much, whatever you feel like doing. And I just kind of ended up being there the whole time. And that's okay. Uh, there's a whole million ways to work. Mm-hmm. Uh, it just planted the seed of there's a a thing I haven't done for a long time that I kind of suddenly, then I started missing it. But then I got sick again. So that kind of put that off. And then after being sick, I started listening to new music and started liking what I heard and started wanting to make music. Mm-hmm. And that's when I, about a year ago, downloaded Ableton, started fooling around with it, started finding I enjoyed it. I forgot how much I enjoyed the process of trying to make something 
out of whatever you're doing and out of nothing really. Yeah. And you know, I mean, I love exploring new things. So exploring electronic music has been fascinating. It's just freaky to me. (laughs) I mean, the fact that I'm into doing that, if you had told me four years ago, you're going to be doing electronic music, I would have said, you're out of your mind. And, uh, it's fun. And it also reminds me of how much I like doing that thing with other people. So at what point did you just say, you know what, I'm going to tell everybody that I'm coming out of retirement and I'm going to start making records again. Was there a hesitation to that, first of all? No. Okay. By this time, there wasn't. I mean, the hesitation would be from the time Bruce Rayburn and Swerve started bugging me. Apparently, Matt Wallace planted the seed in him because <laughs> he was trying to get Matt to do something, I think. And Matt's just like, I'm going to, I don't know if it was, I'm going to pot him off on Kevin or what, but he's like, you should dig up Kevin. Kevin should be doing stuff. And uh, Bruce should be doing stuff too. So Bruce started hounding me and he's sending me sound files and we kept talking and I listened to some stuff he'd done at this one place that just, they did some recordings that just did not work for them. And I was feeling bad. I've known, I, I you know, he did records back with Matt Wallace said dangerous rhythm 30 some years ago that were great. His guy who's been sitting there in obscurity. So it's kind of a good match of both of us coming back, trying to do something. And finally, I just, we sat down at shark bite with Ryan and I listened to the, we got the tracks from the studio to see if I could remix them. I was like, and me and Ryan are looking at each other going, we could set them up for two days and do something that works better. It was very organically, not quite right. Um, so, and that got me, you know, by then I was ready, but it took him about six months of pushing me. But by the time I was pushed and we did it, I was like, yeah, you know, I've been working with Ableton at home and I was enjoying it more and more. And I was like, I want to do music again. I don't know if I want to do music 60 hours a week, nonstop. I, I, I'm getting a little old for that. Ryan already sat me down like the day after I stayed up till two in the morning doing vocals. He's like, you got to learn to have boundaries. You never had that. I was like, yeah, you're right. So (laughs) I'm still not sure exactly how it's all going to work out and how much I want to do it. If anyone wants to do it. Mm -hmm. And uh, I don't know, but I have a very big openness that I didn't have for a long time. And here's one of the inspirational things to me, and this is going to sound stupid, but music is hopeless financially now, pretty much, which puts it right back where it was when I enjoyed it with all those early punk rock bands because they were just doing it because they loved it and they wanted to make music and they had to get something out. Mm -hmm. And very much with Bruce, with this thing we did, he just needed to get some recording out in the world. And I think it's a great time where you can reach a lot of people, but you can't, the odds of making a whole bunch of money doing music are pretty slim. Now they were slim before, but they're really slim now. And I think, you know, you've got this advent of all these people like sitting the thing bedroom pop where people sit in their bedroom and make a great record. And, you know, they they can't be doing it because they go, oh, my God, I'm going to be in the top 10 because the top 10 is this crazy manufactured stuff that they're obviously not trying to do. And and it's inspirational and it resets it back to a place I like. But then again, here I am asking to be paid. Well, but I'm not trying to make. I'm not, I have no intention of like making my whole living off of it or trying to become some huge successful guy or anything. Yeah. Just want to help some people. Will you try to pick up in the same way you were working before using those same methods? 
of setting up a band without isolation, headphones, et cetera. Is that uh, of importance to you or? It's one of the things I want to do. Okay. And I'm open to doing other things. Um, it depends on the band and what they're doing and what their their timeline and budget is. Not in reference to me necessarily, but you know what they're doing. Haven't figured it all out yet. I think, I mean, I know that I'm good at the one thing, right? But I'm good at other things too. So I don't know. I mean, will you dive into the world of Pro Tools? Oh, yeah. And I think there are, it, no matter what, there will always be an organic background that will resist the whole computer fix everything. It doesn't mean I wouldn't do it, mm-hmm. but it would definitely probably always be in my mind. Let's resist doing that unless we really have to. But um, just as a form of even to use it as a simple, you know, quote unquote tape recorder. Yeah, well, you have to. There's no reason to go analog. So odds are at some point it's going to end up going digital. And there's a lot of modeling things that can make it sound like it went through analog tape. I mean, from when I left digital sound and now, mm-hmm. whatever arguments I had against digital sound back then are pretty much gone. There's definitely been some huge leaps in in technology and improvements and converters and stability. And I have a hundred dollar Focusrite preamp and Ableton and a few plugins, and I'm happy. Yeah, that that setup maybe 15, 20 years ago would sound awful. Would sound terrible. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's go back to the to the early start of all of this. How did you get into the world of recording? What brought you into it in the first place? I was in bands, punk rock bands from day one, like 77, a whole, the worst punk rock band ever. And uh, then I got serious and had a power pop band and had a no wave band. They all suck pretty much. <laughs> But, um, you know, I loved recording, so I would go into places and record and, you know, wasn't always a good experience, right? I mean, especially the moment you attach the name punk rock, a lot of people just would laugh at you. The last band I'd had, we went in to record and I found a place with this guy. He'd done a record that sounded great. I was like, let's go work there. Went there. Remember, this is the early 80s. He's going to the bathroom every 15 minutes. Huh, what's he doing? Wonder what he's doing. And then finally, halfway through the day, he stops the charade and he's just doing lines on the board all day. <laughs> and at the end of the day, we're going home and he's in that totally cranky, messed up attic kind of mindset. And he's just like, looks at us and goes, I don't know what kind of studios you guys have ever been in before, but usually the client brings drugs for the engineer. And I remember my drummer just kind of laughed at him. I was just like, oh my God. So that helped plant all all the experience up till there planted the seed that, wow, there's a need for people who can accept a variety of music who aren't crazy drug addicts and just like, there's just a need for something. Like like people would produce local punk bands and there's there's a few exceptions, but some of the better bands around here in the late, in the 70s and early 80s would make records that were just like, what did you do to them? You ruined them. Right. I mean, for years and years, people tried to tame punk rock bands. I I remember like the mutants made an album and it was just like, oh my God, this is just, it's hardly the same band. You go see them live. They're amazing. You hear the record it's boring as could be. Sorry, whoever did the mutants, (laughs) but, or the nuns, they made a boring album. I think that might even come out on Posh Boy, who's a really great guy, but it just wasn't them live. So all this came together. I made this single. Everyone hated the single. I'll never tell you what it was. 
And it sounded great. Everyone hated it. Sounded great. So all my friends started going, can you help us? We're going to go record. You know, can you help produce us? So I started producing people. I sucked. Um, but the first album I produced, I think, one of the, or out of the first two, um, got on Posh Boy. I hounded him like you wouldn't believe. He signed, he made the band sign a seven-year contract to get one song on the third Rodney on the Rock compilation. And uh, so I took it seriously. I was like, okay, they're signed to the label. We're going to put out a record. And the singer's family had money, so we just went ahead and recorded it. And uh, I kept hounding Robbie Fields, who taught me a lot and was very patient and listened to me being a very ignorant starting out very motivated guy and he finally put the record out so and it sounded kind of weird but you know the band performance thing i think was there i just proceeded from there i i i was gonna go back to school as i told you i was cleaning houses out here in your neighborhood oh wow which is the low point of my life 25 or 26 and uh, i remember some woman pretty close by here um she like takes me aside one day and she's like kevin you seem like an intelligent young man why are you doing this I had no answer. So I was going to go back to school and become a, go to SF State and take the recording engineering program. When at the same time, I'd taken a band in to produce a demo tape at Dangerous Rhythm with Matt Wallace when he first was in Oakland, I think. And we were talking and he's like, yeah, I need someone to work here as an engineer. And I was like, I want that job. So I called him every day for a month. I drove him crazy. I was good at driving people crazy back then. And he, he pretty much told me he gave me the job because I wanted it the most. So I, I had gone back to school for a week. I had to go to junior college. I was going to have to go there for a while before I could go to SF State. I quit, took the job there. Matt showed me what he knew about engineering. Fortunately, he'd taken some classes. And by then, he was already really great. And pretty quickly after training me, he's like, here, here's the keys. Record a band. Because the studio was this really cheap, underground studio. It attracted the right type of people. And because I'd done records, the right the type of people I work well with, there were some bad sessions, but generally, you know, it was one of the places to record your alternative kind of band, whatever form of alternative you were. Because I had done some punk stuff, I got punk bands and no one wanted to work with punk bands, 1985, 86. And so, you know, and it just took off from there for me. Um, and I did some horrible sounding records in the first year it was until I went down, Matt found John Golden down South. And he said, go master a record with this guy. He'll sit down and he'll show you what he's doing and he'll tell you what you could do better. And, uh, I took a record down there and John's like, you got to get a DS. I'm having to do this to the whole mix. And that's why your record's going to sound dull. And he takes out the microscope and he shows me what it's doing to the grooves, even after he's DS'd it. But I mean, the grooves are going back and forth in this zigzag motion. And he's explaining, that's not going to track. And if I let any more of that, it's just going to make the needle jump and it's going to blow up my mastering stuff. And just, it's bad. So I went home, I came back here, bought a DSer. The next record I did, I put a DSer on the vocals. It was the first Mr. T Experience album recorded, mixed in 13 hours. And it sounded 10 times better than the album before that we'd spent a year on with countless hours because I learned about what I was doing wrong. And so, of course, that's the start of me like, oh, well, I'm, I mean, I'm, I mastered almost everything with John after that, who taught me tons. We used to sit up late at night, but go, I'd drive down there. We'd master something. He'd tell stories. He'd tell me things. And I learned a lot down there. So anyway, that's the beginning. It's interesting. Some people have 
specific mentors, but for, you know, kind of a, a, a long-term type thing, but it seems like there are like almost another category of mentorship where it's just, you know, hanging out for these little chunks of time with people like John Golden or getting encouragement from, you know, Matt Wallace, you know, and it's not, I would, I, I wouldn't necessarily think of those as mentorships from a traditional perspective, but more just like almost, um, I don't know what you'd call it, part-time mentorship or fly-by-night mentorship or. There are people who inspire you. Yeah. They, we go through life and there's people we meet who have an effect on us, who inspire us a lot. I mean, I've had people tell me I was a mentor to them, and I'm like, I don't know. Was I? (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, it's just the thing that happens, you know. It's not like John Golden one day went, I'm going to mentor Kevin Arby. That wasn't really the relationship. The relationship was, I'm his his client. He just happened to be very nice to me. He's nice to most people, I think. Um, I'm just the crazy guy who was willing to drive down for every project, whether I could get money out of the band or not, so I could oversee the mastering and get it to sound right. And he liked me and what I was doing enough to, you know, he always showed me everything, which is great. And it's good. I think understanding mastering really helps you know what you're doing when you're engineering. Most definitely. (laughs) And it's helping me now that I can kind of master what I'm doing. Uh Uh-huh. I don't know. It's in the whole, you know, it's interesting. Any big lessons that have come out of your career prior to your your hiatus, we'll call it. Any things that you learned that still stick with you that you think are relevant to now? Yeah. I think my, my core philosophies, mm-hmm. I think, never get in the way of the artists with the engineering. That the engineering is secondary, I think. Mm. I remember once I'm doing a session and I wanted to get going really quick. And the second engineer was insisting on taping all the cords down to the ground. And I was like, we're ready to go. I I don't have time for this. And he just looked at me appalled that I would consider the band's needs over taping the cords down. He was fired the next day. (laughs) And shockingly though, several years later, I saw his name as the mix down guy on a very successful record. So we all have different approaches. Yeah. But my approach is the technical end is there as little as possible. I understand, especially in hindsight, that it's secondary. And this is, I think this is a philosophy me and Matt share because he, he posts about this often, Matt Wallace. He was posting the other day about a $100 microphone that was used on a big hit single. It's not about what equipment you use or how perfect sounding it is or any of that stuff. It's about the song. It's about especially the vocal performance and the band performance and how well that comes across to people and not filtering that. So probably even more than that is like just making sure I don't do anything that's going to put a filter on what the band's doing. I'm there to put that across, which is difficult sometimes because the band may not want to do everything. They may get in the way of it coming across to the world. And so you're trying to walk this fine line but if nothing else, not to get in the way. So like if you got a singer and the singer's voice is a little hoarse and you're going to spend two hours getting the vocal sound, guess what's going to happen? And you might've gotten the greatest vocal sound ever, but the singer's not going to sing good anymore. So get the bad vocal sound, just go with it. And, you know, maybe even don't fix it later. Who knows? I love accidental sound. I love being open to whatever happens. I made some recordings 
25, 30 years ago that sound horrible and people are still listening to them because I didn't get in the way, I think, because I got the band to do what the band does. So that'd be a core thing I've learned. Kevin Army here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. We're going to take a sponsor break with our friends from Audio Technica and just remind you to stop by audio-technica.com. Of course, they have a wide variety of headphones, microphones, turntables, and a lot of various products to help you get the audio job done and uh, get it done at a good price and get it done with quality. So be sure and stop on over to audio-technica.com and check them out. Yeah. Let's get back to it. Kevin Army here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. You mentioned uh, the mutants and you talked about some of those early records that people would do where they would go in and the band would just sound completely changed and it wasn't really them as compared to live, which seems to also um, directly correlate to the way you work. Setting a band up, letting them play without all of these technical um, things in the way like headphones and such, as we've mentioned a couple of times, just and, letting them be them. Mm-hmm. And you can manufacture that. Uh, obviously, Green Day doesn't set up and play everything live and that's the take always. I don't know about all the records, but the one idea, you know, but they got time to do it and they're experienced enough to be able to get that powerful thing a piece at a time if they need to, even though they all play together for the drum tracks. They also don't labor things, but I I realize you can achieve that in a variety of ways. If you have a thousand dollars, probably my suggested way is the easiest way to do it because you don't have time. If nothing else, and even if you have $10,000, it's kind of hard to do that. If you have a hundred thousand dollars, then you're, you can do that. That's, that's part of that. I mean, here's when things changed, right? Is, is when Nirvana hit it big, that record someone took, I still, I still see them out of the arc of punk rock, even though people try and dissociate them from that, but that's their background and they're playing the way people were playing which is kind of overplaying that drummer's like all over the place on Nevermind. And before that, people were always signing alternative or punk bands and trying to tame them for a major label. And Nevermind, suddenly someone didn't tame the band. Instead, they probably made them more powerful. And and that's the same thing with Dookie by Green Day. I, I, I did demos for those songs for when they were shopping them around. And then I heard the album and I went, oh my God, he made them more powerful as opposed to these years of people taking bands and making them less powerful than they were. And I think that's when there was a shift to that, you know, which people would do that with other bands. Mm-hmm. You wouldn't take ACDC and water them down or Judas Priest. But for some reason, you're going to take the the punk rock bands and water them down because you think, oh, well, it's too hard to make the public like this. And that, that, that would be another overriding philosophy of mine, which is no matter what it is, it has to be as much like itself as it can be. And that would be if it's super schmaltzy, mm-hmm. if it's Barry Manilow, he's all the way Barry Manilow. No one's watering that down. It's over the top. Beyonce is over the top. Yeah. Um, it's no one's going, Oh, you should calm down, man. Uh, that, that's, you know, it sounds like go all the way. You have to go all the way with it. And I think that's the producer needs to take what's there and bring out the most in it. And there's examples of watered down art. Natalie Merchant comes to mind as, <laughs> as just a big bunch of nothing to me. 
Yeah. I guess because it's nice background music. Yeah. But whenever I hear that solo stuff, I go, what's there? Yeah. Um, I don't know if anyone's going to listen to that, though, in 20 years. Yeah. As opposed to Adele, who I don't like. Yeah. But when I hear that, I go, that's strong. It's very strong. Um, I think that people will listen to Adele for a long time. I would agree with that. Yeah. yeah. There's just some music that just emotionally does not grab me at all. Just I l- listen to it. And a lot of music, a lot of music today that is, I think I'm generally prejudiced towards uh, guitar, bass, and drums. Yeah. And anything outside of that, it's got to be pretty compelling for me to to pay attention. Otherwise, I just go, oh, who's that? There's sometimes I hear a song and go, sing, and my wife will be singing along to it in the car. I'm like, who is this? And she's like, how can you not know who this is? <laughs> like, Because I don't listen to this kind of music, nor do I pay attention to this kind of music. So, well, that, that, there's two worlds of music now to me. There's this mainstream thing. I don't know. It's just this product, a lot of it. But then there's a whole other world that's not product. See, I hear stuff that doesn't have guitars that's got that thing I'm looking for. Going back to the bedroom pop kind of people who are able to figure out how to work. I think partly because they don't know all the things that could kill the music. You know, I don't know. Do you think that um, the music that you'll work with in the future will have more of an electronic bent bent to it because of your experience with Ableton or will you stick to the tried and true of what you know from the past? I have a couple of fears. One is the fact that I'm doing electronic music on my own. It's going to turn people off to me working with their rock bands. Hmm. And I still love rock bands and I, I wouldn't want to impose any of that on the rock band. And I, okay, I said a couple of fears. I don't know what the fear is around the electronic music. Um, I like it being for myself, but I'd be curious to work with someone with it. I don't know if I'm there yet. Um, I could hear myself mixing some indie pop bedroom album kind of thing that someone did. Don't know if I'm the best person yet. I'm working on it. I know I don't want to be totally put in a box. Like I think that was one of my problems before I ended up in a box, right? I'm just that guy who does that. You, um, you essentially were the punk rock guy, right? Yeah, the pop punk guy. Okay. Even more pop punk specifically, guy. right? And uh, I like a huge variety of music. And I'm curious to explore God knows what, you know. Do you have a plan of attack of... No. No. I have no plan. <laughs> okay, here's the... I mean, I am a better businessman now than I was then. One of my problems was I knew nothing about business. And I'm better at, I kind of know how to work the internet a little bit, but I still don't have a great plan. And maybe that's because I don't totally, I'm taking this a step at a time. Mm-hmm. And right now I'm just putting the word out and seeing what happens. And and I do worry there's people who won't want to approach me because I'm like, oh, he worked with Green Day, he costs too much money. And I'm like, I'm poor. <laughs> I, I, money is not a, shouldn't be too big a deterrent. It's also a rough time. I did talk to another band before this about doing their thing. I probably quoted them a little too much money. And then they found a family friend who I think probably worked for nothing. There's always somebody who's going to work for nothing. And yeah. And cause they had connections. So the guy probably thought, well, if I help them, it's going to get me, you know, like the whole string of things there. So I, 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 I enter this knowing there's, there's little money for people to do this. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how it's going to go or what it's going to lead to. I, and I like that too. I also think I could have a better plan, you know. Well, I wish you luck either way. I, I think it's great that you're getting back into it. And uh, I can't believe it's been 14 years. I read that and I was like, is that a typo? 
No. Is, that, is, he, is that accurate? Where? Yeah, can I tell you that mixing a rock band after 14 years and trying to figure out if you've got the mix right when you only have a day to do the mix? Not easy. Yeah. I was ready to kill myself. Poor Ryan Massey and Scott Evans both walked in the room. I think Ryan brought Scott in to say hi. And I was like, who are both great engineers in their own right. Uh, in case the listeners don't know, and oh, they well, yeah, and Scott actually is. You've had them both on here. They've both been on the show, and Scott is actually, I think, the second most downloaded podcast. Right of all of oh, almost two hundred podcasts. I've heard some stuff by him that just is really awesome, and it's like awesome in a way I could never do. Yeah. So anyway, they walk in the room, and I'm just sitting there. I'm just like freaking out, and they're having to talk me down. Scott can't help himself. He sits down at the computer and starts fooling around with things, <laughs> trying to see what I'm doing. <laughs> and had a couple of good suggestions. Then I had to undo a few things. And uh, I got through it. Yeah. Do you feel like you have a blank slate ahead of you now? No. No. Okay. No. I feel like I got an albatross okay. I'm carrying around. <laughs> like, you know, I don't know. There's always this, like, thing, like, well, it's cool you did that stuff, but I don't know. Can you do anything else? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I am surprised at the nice reaction I got this week posting my blog. Oh, the minute I saw it, I was like, I got to reach out to him now. Maybe my perception of how I am in the world is not how I am. So I don't know. <laughs> I really just don't know. It's a work in progress. I, 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 I'm beginning to sense. Yeah, and it's okay. I have a source of income. Not great, but you know, I'm not desperate to do it, but I, I want to, which is a good place to be. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know what'll happen. We'll uh we'll just leave it as to be continued. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Well, we're out of time, so I appreciate you uh driving out here and, and joining me for, for a good conversation. This is this is really good. Yeah, it's been fun. Is it best for people uh, that are interested in working with you or finding out more about you? Should they go to kevinarmy.com? Probably Facebook. Yeah, okay. it's a good way. Give me a couple days because I got to sort through all the. There's all these spam people sending friend requests and stuff, but otherwise, if you seem like you're a musician, I'll accept the friend request or to send a message request. But right now, Facebook. Okay, probably that sounds good. Awesome, Kevin. Thank you so much. Kevin Army here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Great to have Kevin over at the house today. And uh, it's always great to do the interviews in person. It just it has such a different feel and uh, is a little more personal than uh, just video. We are out of time, so we want to thank Cliff Truesdell, Chuck Smith, and Cole Williams. And we want to, of course, thank you for listening. Spread the word. Tell all your friends, every single one of them, of course, and visit us on social media. And until next time, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like, and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.